This is the BIB interview, a regular discussion with newsmakers. And I'm Kirk LaPointe, editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver. Today, I'm in conversation with Peter German, the author of a report commissioned by the British Columbian NDP government to examine the extent of money laundering in our economy, in particular at our casinos. Mr. German is a former deputy commissioner of the RCMP, a former deputy commissioner for Correction Services Canada, an acknowledged authority and author on how funds illicitly acquired find ways to emerge in the legitimate economy somehow. His report was not aimed to lay blame, but the public response has been quick to do so on the previous Liberal government. But we're going to spend some time now examining the findings and his ideas for reform. Welcome. Good to have you here. Thanks, Kirk. Pleasure to be here. I want to start with a question that probably isn't straightforward um, and and about the report. I want to understand a little bit more about you Mm -hmm. and what drew someone to this line of work. What was it about growing up (laughs) <laughs> that made you want to do this as a grown-up? Yeah. Well, that's a really good question. I don't know if I have a good answer for it. Um, th- there were really two things I wanted to do in life, and one was to be a Mountie and the other was to be a lawyer. And uh, somehow I was able to uh, accomplish both those goals. And um, I think the other part of it, uh, part of the deeper issue, is that my my dad had been a war veteran and uh, – I think there was a, and my mom had actually been a war bride, had lived through the uh, the war in, in Holland. And I think there was always uh, a real commitment to uh, the public yeah. uh, in our family. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't so much about money. It was about doing the right thing. Yeah. It sounds a bit corny, but I, I think- Were you about righting wrongs a lot I, as I, a kid, do you think, remember? I, I don't know if I was as a kid, but I think I sort of gravitated in this area towards policing, and it probably was as a result of that uh, that uh, growing up and, um, and loved police work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved it for a whole lot of different reasons. I mean, it's fun. It's it can be exciting at times, uh, lots of camaraderie and, and that sort of thing. But you can also do a lot of good things for people, whether you're the patrol officer on the road mm-hmm. or whether you're involved in investigations. And as time went on, I became quite fascinated by um, the financial crime aspects. Yeah. Um, and that led me into commercial crime and then later money laundering, proceeds of crime as our Canadian legislation evolved. And the timing was pretty good for me in terms of my graduate work. Mm-hmm. And also in terms of writing and so forth. So it all sort of came together. I want to keep you young here for a moment. <laughs> I also want to find out why it didn't make you afraid. What, what, how did you conquer the fear that would come with moving into a line of policing where you're around dangerous situations at all times? Do you- yeah, it's really never been much of a concern. Um I think the police officer on the street, obviously, is, you know, one never knows what's around the corner and Mm -hmm. what the next call will lead to. Um, When you get into the sort of rarefied area of financial crime, although you are dealing with organized crime and uh, some very nasty elements, um, generally speaking, there's a certain distance as you're putting your investigation together. Uh, So that really has never been a uppermost in my mind. So Mounties, soldiers top lawyers would have been idols? I don't know if I had idols in those areas. Um, I would like to think that my idols are probably your idols. You know, uh, uh, you know, who, who do you think of that's 
politically neutral that we all look at as an idol. I'm Mahatma Gandhi and right. people that do good things, you know. So, no, I don't think I'm one of these that idolized. There wasn't um, a TV lawyer, a TV No, I, I, I don't think so. But I always gravitated towards, I guess, TV shows as a kid involving the police. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a certain fascination with it. Um but, you know, there was something about the Mounties, too. They were Canada, and it just seemed like hmm. a pretty cool thing to do. When do you I remember your first big bust, Peter? <laughs> well, after uh, training at uh, Depot Division in Regina, I went to Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. Spent two years there, and uh, I was in Grand Falls. So a lot of the work was pretty routine, but you really learned the basics of police work and, mm-hmm. and dealing with people. Yeah. Uh, and it was the impaired drivers, and it was the drugs, and the types of things that you would run into. And you in couldn't slam them all into, a, into an institution somewhere. You had to navigate the reality sure. of a small community. The big thing in policing uh, always has been is talking to people. Yeah. And um, nowadays, of course, it was even more so, I think, in those days. We had no level of force that we could use between our hands and a firearm. There oh. was nothing in between. Yeah. There was no such thing as a no, no taser, billy no stick or a taser or a spray. So it really was a matter of talking through virtually every situation. And um, now, of course, things have changed. We also, at that time... Most people were expected to be robust, strong men, uh, mm-hmm. not necessarily the way to go. Don't get me wrong. Um, but as the uh, recruiting uh, changed in police forces, obviously police had to adapt, had to have tools to allow people to level the playing field. And we, you know, these tools are great. But I think the important thing for police officers uh, is, is to always continue, uh, always remember that it is about talking to people. Yeah. And uh, still, from time to time, I run into scenarios uh, where as a citizen, I will see something happen and I will intervene, hopefully in an appropriate fashion, but it's always by talking to somebody. And it's amazing what you can do yeah. in that. Well, the patience that's required and all of that too is pretty extraordinary. I mean... And there must be times where you just you shake your head and go, I don't have patience for this guy sure. right now. I've got to deal with it. You know, sure. And you, you became, um, you've got actually your doctorate. It's called a doctor of philosophy, but my understanding is that in the British system, that's just how it's applied. You're, you're, you know, so you're not a philosopher here. I'm not a philosopher. However, you would, be a, you would be probably a pretty advanced psychologist on the basis of all the human beings you've gotten to, in a way, um, defang. Yeah. Well, I, I think most police officers that have been doing the business for a while probably are. Um, if they're good at what they do, they know how to deal with people. And uh, so many situations can be diffused uh, through that, through through talking to people and finding alternate ways of, of dealing with issues. Not all, admittedly. Uh, and I think uh, you mentioned patience. I think patience is something that comes to a certain extent with age. Right. Um, no doubt, I, like others, when you're gung-ho you're a brand new young police officer you know it's more action oriented deal with situations get on to the next call Uh, now i'm probably a little bit more laid back probably spend a little bit more time talking to people a little bit more patient with people i've seen a lot Mm -hmm. and so i sort of understand where you know not everybody is like yourself people come from different backgrounds different social histories and uh, you have to be uh, you have to be understanding 
the people you talk about in a small town like Grand Falls or even a place like Regina, um, they're encountering strife or stress and, and it probably trauma brought them to that moment. Mm -hmm. They're not what you would typically call criminals. Right. How did you come to understand the criminal mind? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't profess to be a psychologist or to understand the criminal mind, but I do accept the fact that there are certain people that will flaunt uh, the law, whatever it might be. And then there's others that are quite law abiding and, you know, will mm -hmm. do their very best to avoid, you know, breaking any law. Um, they often say the best police officer is, is someone that's grown up in a pretty tough community and has seen that firsthand. Uh, mm -hmm. In many ways, I grew up in a middle-class, uh, uh, you know, uh, environment. So I, I can't blame Blame yeah. my environment. Um, I, I think really it's it's more an objective. In my case, particularly when you get into white collar crime, it's really an objective uh, study of what you're doing. It, it's gathering evidence. It's very empirical. Um, and at some point, yes, you have to interview people. And uh, there are lots of techniques to interviewing people. No different than there are lots of techniques for lawyers to cross-examine people mm -hmm. and examine them. There's lots of techniques. And um, I, I think over time, you understand the types of questions to ask, the types of questions not to ask. Uh, but that's about as far as I go in terms of trying to understand a person's but is, mind. But is the white-collar criminal um, in a lot of ways to be respected? And I don't mean in, a, in, a, um, in an exalted way, but mainly just as like for their wizardry in some cases, they're, they're their capacity to manipulate uh, financial systems. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't use the word respect. Uh, yeah. um, I think w what we're getting at, though, is that it's too bad that some of these people don't apply their talents in a legitimate fashion because yeah. they could probably do very good for themselves. Why yeah. they've chosen this other route, the quick buck, the quick money, whatever it might be, uh, getting to that place in their life that they don't feel they can get to otherwise. Um, but a lot of them are quite talented. Yeah, admittedly, I mean, when you see fraudsters and people doing Ponzi schemes and so forth, uh, a little bit different when you talk about money laundering proceeds of crime, because I see a real, well, there's a, there's a, don't get me wrong. When it comes to fraud and Ponzi schemes, there are real victims there as well. Yes. Um, the difference, I suppose, with organized crime, money laundering, is that you actually get into street violence, you get into the drugs, and, mm. and you actually, not only are people victimized financially, but it can be much, much worse once you see that intersection. Yeah. I think a lot of people pursue an occupation and a career because they not only, of course, sense themselves well, but they sense a gap. They sense an opening there. So when did you appreciate the opening that was there for you around something like money laundering? Yeah. Maybe if I could just um, digress for a moment. Uh, I, I remember almost my first day on the road. I, I actually worked with the Halifax Police Department briefly before I went back to college and then joined the Mounties. And I can remember my first day on the job at the Halifax Police Department, a very wise old sergeant came up to me and he said, son, you're last day on the job is going to be just the same as your first day. Hmm. And it, I didn't really get that at the time. But I think what he was saying is there will always be a need for police officers. There yes. will always be, you know, uh, people that require help. And also, you know, as we've referred to the criminal element or people that will do bad things. And that was his way of 
saying that. Um, and, and I think there's a certain amount of truth to that. Uh, unfortunately, we're always going to need law enforcement. It's it's a necessary evil in our society. Uh, in terms of uh, money laundering proceeds of crime, um, how I got started in that, it I started mixing uh, my interest in academics and law with policing. And uh, so while in the RCMP, I did graduate study in law mm-hmm. and I chose the proceeds of crime legislation in about 1989, 90, when it was brand new yeah. as a topic uh, yeah, for I research. Remember that. I remember yeah. that year, those years. In fact, it was here at UBC uh, mm-hmm. with uh, Professor Hogarth, who was uh, quite an expert, had done UN work. And he said, why don't you look at the charter and how the charter will impact on this new legislation? So I said, okay. And actually, from that point forward, uh, my work within the RCMP, my academic interest, my writing, uh, in some, and also my teaching, all sort of uh, went down that same track in a parallel fashion. Yeah. It, it was a turning point, uh, as you know, um, and, I, and I'm not a, a scholar like you are on all this, but I remember being a, a reporter in Ottawa mm-hmm. and where proceeds of crime legislation was radical in the sense of, yes. of you know, my goodness, you mean you'll actually seize the yeah. goods that have been stolen and somehow recompense right. the victim, or you'll have victim impact statements that will, right. w- that will you know, in a way shape the sentencing Right. of someone. I mean, it became a, a profound opening yep. in a lot of ways in the way that we thought about crime as being also something that we could get a different form of justice for. Yeah, I think you're 100% right, uh, Kirk. Um, prior to 1989, laundering was not a criminal offense in this country. No. It, it had something to do with washing your clothes, right? Uh, we're laundering as, as a term. And people almost laughed at the fact that that might actually be called, be, become a criminal offense. And it is a criminal offense uh, now, and it has been um, for all those years. But there was more to it. Uh, obviously, in, in the old days, people could actually go to jail and keep their ill-gotten yeah. wealth. Right. And no one seemed to think twice about that. And, and finally, government said, no, 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 that's wrong. And it wasn't just the Canadian government. Internationally, there was a move. Then I think at some point, particularly um, uh, the United States said, look, maybe we can actually use money as an investigative tool. So follow the money, follow the money trail rather than the drug trail or the commodities. In, in essence, go backwards. Yeah. And uh, an example I often use is um, heroin. A kilo of heroin will give you multiple kilos of dollar bills. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much harder to deal with the money. Money is bulkier than drugs. Yeah. So follow the stash, follow the money stash, and, and you'll find at least that side of the criminal organization. organization. Yeah. Uh, in your report, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe jumping ahead here, but in your report, you also uh, articulate um, a certain amount of respect and appreciation for some of the work of journalists who have actually been able to follow the money. It's not that easy to do. Investigative work is, is in a way, very punishing on the system because it requires sources and assistance and, and also a bit of a, a mind for numbers that yep. journalists often don't have in this case. But there is an analogy, isn't there, between oh, the investigative journalist and the investigator? Yep. Mm. And I've intersected with journalists uh, often on these large files. Um, I have a lot of respect for, as I mentioned in the press statement, um, the 
ethical, hardworking investigative journalists. We need more of them, quite frankly, mm-hmm. in, yeah. in any society. Uh, the rule of law requires free speech and a free press. And I, I believe in that very strongly. Uh, and certainly in this casino file, uh, I didn't go into it realizing that. I certainly was aware of Sam Cooper's work because it was in the in the papers. Uh, but then as I, I start going through the history over the last decade, I'm seeing multiple reports from multiple news outlets, uh, television, um, print, radio, all about the same topic. Yeah. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, uh, alarm bells are going off here. And so then the issue was, okay, what was done as a result of that? So I know I really, uh, a shout out for investigative journalists is, is really, um, uh, well-deserved. And I know the minister did the same thing yeah. at, the, at the press uh, conference. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we all worry that this is um, a dwindling practice, you know, it was something where, where really maybe the times call more and more for this kind of work because of the sophistication of those essentially on the other side of the game. Yeah. No, I, I would uh, agree with you there. And with the decline in, in print media, you really see, you know, there's less revenue and, mm-hmm. and therefore the less ability to, uh, to hire investigative journalists who can spend time doing this sort of thing. Um, but at the end of the day, we need that. And we know that uh, journalism as a profession is under attack in many third world or developing world countries or, you mm-hmm. know, despotic regimes. And um, a couple of first world countries. Too, and a couple of yeah. first yeah. Uh, yeah. as, as yeah. well. Yeah. So, uh, no, it, it's it's definitely uh, important. It, um, you're a very plain spoken, and I think people respect the um, immense articulation that you have. So I'm going to put you to a bit of a test. I want you to explain money laundering to me <laughs> as if I were four years old. Well, no, that's a good question, actually. And uh, it really all boils down to laundering. It's no different than what you do with your uh, mm-hmm. when you wash your clothes. Uh, there's three cycles. There's the, uh, the wash, the spin, and the dry cycle. And that's really what it is. So when it comes to money laundering, uh, let us say you are a drug trafficker and you have just sold. I'm off. a four-year-old drug trafficker. <laughs> okay. Is what okay, fair <laughs> enough. We're, we'll play. We'll play here. Peter. And uh, you have just sold uh, a quantity of drugs and you have a whole lot of $20 bills. You have to somehow uh, exchange that money or get that money into the financial system without attracting attention to yourself. So that you can do two things, buy product, which is more drugs, and have a profit and do something with your money. So, and if we're talking large organization, large amounts of cash. So you then have, you have to initially place it somehow into the system. And, and what we saw in the report hopefully outlines how uh, casinos were used in that placement stage. Because that's where cash is. It's a cash-based business in many ways. And there are lots of other cash-based businesses, and that's why in the report I also talk about those, and the ministers also talked about them. You have to somehow get this money into the economy. Once it's there, you go into the the spin cycle, and you want to to move that money around. How do you spin it inside a casino? call that layering. Yeah, how do you spin it inside a casino? Well, you don't necessarily do the spinning inside the casino. You've Mm. got it in the casino, so you take it out of there. Uh, you've now got either a check or you've got $100 bills, and you may then take that and put it in a bank, uh, credit union, whatever it is, uh, 
buy a car, do whatever, mm-hmm. or just purchase more product. And then, uh, or you could send it off offshore. You could do a whole lot of different things. And all you're doing is, is obfuscating. I'll use a nice big word there, obfuscating the paper trail. Yeah. Finally, you want to be able to use that money for an end product. And that is that final end. That's the dry stage. And, uh, and that's when it's, it's thoroughly integrated back into the economy. So that's when you might get your house, you might get your luxury automobile, your luxury boat, your yeah, whatever. And, whatever. That's right. And yeah. then investigators will just have such a hard time going back because yeah. it appears to have been purchased totally legitimately. The mainstream financial system was used and, and, and so forth. Great. Okay. So that's great. So as a system, uh, obviously – um, policing hasn't uh, been able to uh, uh, eliminate the, say, the sale of a drug, so the exchange of cash. What happens then in terms of the system and its incapacity or its inadequacy as it moves into, as, you know, with, with the clutch of rolled up $20 bills that somebody shows up at a casino with? What's the breakdown of the system there? Why, why isn't there a a regulatory or a policing system that nets those people from the get-go. And we're talking about in the casinos when they yeah. come in? Yeah. So as I, as I try to point out in the report, uh, we've had, and thanks again to the journalists, and also uh, had the MNP report, we had a number of audits and reviews. It's obvious that there's lots of information. Casinos are highly regulated. Yeah. Uh, and they, they also have very sophisticated surveillance systems. Well, the reality is they were filling out the forms and whenever they had a suspicious customer, or in most cases, when they had a suspicious customer, they would fill out the necessary forms and send them forward. So they were doing that job um, and that's what's expected of them. What became of those forms they filled out and how this the larger system, the yeah. bureaucracy dealt with it is probably the bigger issue that I try to highlight in, in the report. Is that how we are perceived or have been perceived as being so vulnerable? Because I remember at your press conference, you made mention of the fact that you had gone in to talk to regulators or a casino in Nevada and said, what would, what would happen if yeah. this happened here? And they would say, well, it, it, wouldn't, just, happen. it wouldn't happen here. It couldn't happen here because right. they're, you know, they have a wall that's pretty good. Right. Um, what, what is it about yeah. this situation that made us so vulnerable. I, and I don't think casinos is the only industry where you run into this problem, uh, in, and, and nor is it within the criminal justice system. I think you, we can come up with other examples, but certainly within casinos, uh, and I think I've mentioned this, we have great people in police officers, prosecutors, regulators, um, everybody professional, trained, educated, but there was something about everybody working together wasn't happening. Yeah. Um, BCLC is a very successful corporation, makes a lot of money for the government. Uh, we have a gaming regulator, we have police. So you'd like to think, you know, as soon as that suspicious person comes in, things are going to happen. Yeah. Uh, that has not been the case in British Columbia. Hopefully with the recommendations, we will be in a situation very similar to Nevada and to Ontario. And this isn't something that, I, I mean, it's not as if Nevada started out 
with a perfect system. They started out with the no, very uh, opposite. Las Vegas was not built by the Salvation Army, in my understanding. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. you've got so. the days of Bugsy Siegel yeah. and so forth yeah, yeah, and the mob. Yeah. But around uh, in the 60s and in 70s, that all changed as corporate America came into Las Vegas. And as you see, increased government regulation and crusading uh, attorneys and so forth. And they've turned it around to the point that Nevada is a best practice within the gaming industry. But in Canada, Ontario has done a really good job too. Mm-hmm. Again, mainly because of the structure. It's not that their police are any better than ours or their regulators on a one-on-one, but they work better as a team and they have the right structures and processes in place. Can you figure out, in whether it's your report or just your line of work, on why that alignment hasn't been there? You've got expertise and and I'm going to go out on the limb and suggest there is political will. There always has been political will. Nobody nobody wants to condone crime right. as, exactly. a, as a political figure. Yeah. What, what do you think happened here? Yeah, I describe, in one chapter in the book, I talk about a failed strategy, uh, which is another way of saying that people tried and they put a strategy together, but it didn't work. And in a nutshell, what happened after what's referred to as the Croker Report of 2011, which was commissioned by uh, Rich Coleman, who was then the minister, to find out, like, is there money laundering going on? And uh, and that had stemmed from a journalistic interview as, as well. And uh, so he, he gets this report from Croker, which says, mm, we better, you know, BCLC should be looking at this. It mm-hmm. appears that we've got money laundering in the casinos. I'm sort of generalizing, but that's essentially what it says. And so both BCLC and GPEB, the regulator, Gaming Policy and Enforcement Branch, they did get together and develop a strategy. And the, the emphasis of the strategy was cash alternatives. So the idea was, okay, if we get people to use something other than cash, uh, we eliminate uh, this cash-based money laundering or loan sharking that's taking place. So over the next three, four, five years, that's exactly what they did. They did. They developed cash alternatives, and there was a lot of back and forth between the regulator and the corporation. Corporation wanted to do this, regulator this, discussion with industry and so forth. And there definitely were cash alternatives that were implemented. And when I, I talk about that, I mean anything other than cash. Yeah, you know, gold cards, these, these ATM these, machine these, yeah. or whatever. But we're still not at the stage in the industry on, in terms of cash alternatives uh, where they would be, for example, in Nevada and elsewhere. But I digress. In terms of the strategy, um, in my opinion, where the strategy failed is organized crime is not really interested in cash alternatives. They're still going to bring in cash. Yeah. So yeah. you can get everybody else working on cash alternatives, yeah. and you can develop uh, as they did. My, my, late, my for, late mother, with her with her quarters for the machine, would be very happy to use a credit card, right? Instead of bringing right. fifty dollars to the to the casino. The irony is that the cash alternatives, as developed, almost facilitated in some ways unwittingly the laundering because you could ne- there was now a greater ability to obtain checks. To receive your money, there were also player gaming accounts where you could uh, essentially load up. You could load up your accounts with money, and then after a while, take it out in a check. Um, so it's not that people didn't try, and it's not that people weren't uh, interested in doing something. Uh, I, you know, just take the the view that it was a failed strategy. And if people say, "Well, no, I disagree with you," then I say, "Okay." Uh, 
in law, we have something called res ipsa locator. In other words, take a look at the end result. Um, some things are self-evident. And in July 2015, we reached this apex of money uh, coming into the casinos. It was more than ever before, and it was suspicious. So you're saying if the strategy worked, why is it that we're at this point? Yeah. Um, so- now, now, it's still money inside the system. So I don't want to necessarily suggest it's a, it's a new economy or an addition to the economy. But it is a distortion of the economy in some respect. Uh, what are we talking about here? Peter, are we talking hundreds of millions of dollars that maybe might have been used some other way, but were used in this way here? We easily could be. Uh, I was not asked to put a dollar figure on it. And in the report, I don't attempt that. At the press conference, I said in excess of $100 million. And that through quick arithmetic calculation of the number of suspicious transactions over 10 years and the number and the amount of them. Um, I, I, I wanted to be fairly conservative, um, knowing that I had not and had not been asked to do yeah. an actual accounting. That's not my, my background, or I would have to you know, defer to the experts. But even there, I don't think you'll ever get an accurate amount because money is not necessarily, the cash is not necessarily only coming from organized crime. It could be from the underground economy, uh, writ large, folks that simply don't mm-hmm. declare money f- uh, for tax purposes. And uh, uh, so it can come fr- from a whole lot of different sources. And it would be almost an impossible task to say, okay, this is the precise amount of organized crime money that went through. But I, I th- and it seems a number of people in the media over the last week, not media folks, but a lot of people in social media have said it's got to be much more than that. What I simply said is, it exceeds $100 million. Yeah. The tentacles were pretty extraordinary to read. And yet, I have to say, I, I shouldn't be surprised, but I think I was. You know, I think I was still shocked when I read your report. Uh, the tentacles go into uh, real estate. I think uh, it was the one that people, of course, identify most quickly uh, around because it collides with a whole other thing that's going on, which is an affordability crisis. Sure. Can you really say that it has been a big contributor to the affordability crisis or was it just being played at this high end, a few homes, something that wasn't really going to register in a trickle down way on the price of a condominium yeah. in the city of Vancouver, for instance? We simply don't have that answer at this point. And I therefore can't answer that question. What I can say and what I did say in the report is that we definitely see some connections. Some of the same players are buying real estate. Uh, Some of the same players are advising on how to buy real estate. Mm. But the reality is that real estate is a huge economic driver within British Columbia. It's multifaceted. It includes residential, commercial, development, mortgages. You got a lot of really fine people working in the real estate industry. You got regulators. You got a whole lot of it. It's big. It's much larger than the casino industry, which is very discreet by comparison. So in a way, the money could be sprinkled around a lot of these different channels. Well, one regulator actually uh, in relation to real estate said to me, um, the one thing about real estate is you can see a rat as it goes through the system. So you could essentially have, you know, the criminal element may well target mortgages, may well target commercial real estate, may well target residential and move from one to the other. 
the minister has indicated he, he's interested in looking at this yeah. side of, of real estate. And uh, I agree. I think it's important to look at it, if, if nothing else, but to answer some of these questions. Um, we don't know the full impact uh, at this point of organized crime and whether it's still there and still doing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you characterized it, I think, as a lot of people have at times. It's a whack-a-mole game at the arcade. Correct. So to understand the whack-a-mole game in this context, one has to realize that we have a financial regulator in Canada called FinTrack. And it's it's a large agency of the federal government. It uh, does a really good job of collecting financial data. And it collects financial data from 80,000 plus entities, uh, your banks, mm-hmm. uh, uh, insurance companies, even the post office, lots of reports go forward to FinTrack. Um, in the casino world, you have large cash transaction reports, so over $10,000, uh, they will go. Uh, you've also got suspicious transaction reports. So if someone is, if they're suspicious at the cash cage, you've also got what are referred to as casino disbursement reports, which are the reports uh, when money is given to a client. So you've got various different reports that are going through to FinTrack. We have a number of uh industries that are highly regulated. The first ones on stream really were the banks and uh, banks have large compliance departments. You know, they're familiar with that process and Mm -hmm. they also file large cash transaction reports and suspicious transaction reports. But there are other sectors of the economy where there's no reporting to FinTrack. There's no financial regulation. So I have mentioned some of them in the report, but I'm not alone in that. In fact, the federal government itself has a consultation paper on the Ministry of Finance website, which lists a number of these other areas. That doesn't mean that they're not, they are necessarily involved in organized crime. What it does mean is that they are cash-based uh, industries, and we really can't answer the question. And, they're susceptible. and that's they the are susceptible. They're susceptible. And they are susceptible. Yeah. So you have to hope that they've got uh, systems in place to prevent it. But you are then relying on uh, private industry to regulate itself. And some may say that's acceptable, but we don't say that's acceptable for banks, casinos, and all these others. So why would it be acceptable for, let's say, the horse racing for luxury cars, boats, and and other luxury items? Um, and, and I think that's the question the federal government is asking, you know, where should we go? Because there is a cost to regulation and we know that. Well, and there's, it's, Ironic, of course, that the greater degree of regulation is bound to also reduce the amount of government revenue that likely comes from the gambling tables. Certainly, that's been raised many times that um, you don't want to crack down on this because, but I haven't heard that from government officials, to be no, honest with but you. It, but it's, yeah. an, it, it's they, a reality. They have to accept that there will be less money for that. Uh, yeah. maybe. maybe. So yeah. here's my take on on, on that. Um BCLC does a very good job of um, raising revenue for uh, for government. It's it's the largest ca- it's largest generator uh, of income for the provincial government outside of taxes, about a billion dollars a year, and it's very good at how it does that. Very 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 efficient, um, and 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 that's good uh, in and of itself. So I think what we need is we have to just make sure. That the other side of that business, the regulatory side, is also matured to the extent that the financial side hmm. has matured, and um, uh, that's what we're, we're trying to do with this report. Yeah, yeah. I want to take a look at uh, what you think the better framework might be 
in this case. And um, But I want to take a small step back with that uh, around this because you, you would have had years, decades, and in this case here, to think through a better system and all of this. Um, first of all, where did you look? Where, where do you think it, it is uh, working pretty well now? And, and then what made you think that it might be well applied in a place like British Columbia? Well, as I've already alluded to, uh, Kirk, I looked at two jurisdictions. I looked at Ontario because I wanted a, a Canadian jurisdiction. Um, Quebec also has a vibrant casino industry, but the regulatory structure is a little bit different from what we're used to. Ontario is almost... Uh, the same. And we've got a lot of, well, not a lot, but we've got two of our large casino operators also working in Ontario. So they are quite familiar with the Ontario system. I also looked at Nevada. And in addition to the casino industry there, I also visited with um, the folks at the International Gaming Center at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. This is uh, this. It's the International Center of Gaming Regulation, and uh, the the gentleman that uh, runs it is is a world expert. He he's actually South African, has traveled the world, and worked in gaming systems uh, around the world. A lot of best practices, you know, uh, that he's mm-hmm. familiar with. I could have visited England. I could have visited a number of jurisdictions where they have strong regulatory structures and the casino industry is is vibrant. But I, uh, in terms of, well, one was the length of time I had to do this report. Yeah, you would have to do it pretty swiftly. Right. Yeah. Um, I chose Nevada and Ontario. They were close and uh, and it worked. And I should, if you don't mind me just going back, um, when we talk about the financial side and, and the casino industry taking a financial hit, and I know we're going to get into the, regula- the the recommendations, I'm not too sure it's actually going to take a hit over the long run. Um, I have recommended that the industry move to a standards-based model from a uh, prescriptive model, okay. allowing the casino operators uh, more flexibility in terms of cash alternatives but also placing more of an onus on them to make sure that their reporting uh, is accurate, due diligence, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually think with that, uh, our casinos will be ahead of the game. Uh, that is the way they operate in Ontario, and that's the way they operate in Nevada. So they'll, they'll have, I guess, uh, a system that uh, benefits integrity, yes. in this case here. But there's a social quality to this that I think some would find a little uneasy, which is that you don't want to also encourage people unduly to gamble. Because as you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not the first person to call it a tax on idiots, you know, but, but you don't beat the system uh, for the most part. And it, it can be pretty pernicious. I'm sure in your, in your line of work, you've seen scores of people who have been devastated by this, by a bit of a scourge of gambling, they lose themselves in it, um, and in a way, you know, there's kind of a an odd balance here that we're trying to strike. And I wouldn't say I've I've met lots that have been, but I know that there are a lot of people that have been affected by uh, gambling by gaming. Uh, but I also know that. Uh, there are some pretty mature programs in place for responsible gaming here, Ontario, uh, Nevada, elsewhere. Uh, it is high on the radar of BCLC and and other uh, other entities. Um, they don't want people gambling who are addicts uh, because it, it's not good for business. And, and I think they are doing 
fairly good job. I don't know how good. I haven't assessed that in terms of that that aspect. Um, the reality is that we are in the business of gaming, and the majority of people, the great, I would say, vast majority of people that uh, attend casinos attend for purposes of entertainment. Yeah. And when you talk to the casino operators, they will tell you it's not all about the casino. It's about the full experience. They'll talk about mm-hmm. the shows. They'll talk about the restaurants and their different business lines. I mean, I myself have been in casinos. I've played blackjack in casinos. I've I've played roulette, and I quite enjoy it. I mean, it's the old uh, idea. You have to know when to stop. And the other thing, and the casino operators told me that, not only in Canada, but also in the United States, we're going to win over the long run, sure. the algorithms say the casinos will win. So keep that in mind, you know. And if you make a win, you know, be prepared to walk away run, from the table. Run, actually. Don't, or, don't or, yeah. or enjoy losing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so I think people have to obviously go into uh, gambling or gaming with that in mind. And I, I think the great majority of the population is mature enough to understand that and to realize that. And certainly government is running casinos, so we've accepted as a public policy statement that we will allow this to take place. And yet the uh, the casinos themselves are provincially run, and while many aspects of your report, or at least a few of the aspects of your report, speak to the need for a federal layer of extra oversight in all of this. Have you been so far um, pleased with where this government has gone because you filed your report in March and it, it only came out uh, in June. Um, have you been pleased so far with the progress that's being made around advocacy on, say, criminal code reform, other types of reforms at a federal level that are outside of the jurisdiction of the problem? Well, let me start by saying uh, I'm not a political animal. I don't belong to a political party. In fact, in the course of my RCP career, I think I've investigated all three of people from all three of our parties at one time or another. And, and that's not to say anything negative about those parties. It's just that, you know, you do have investigations. So I'm, I'm not a political person. I have to say I've been most impressed by uh, the minister, uh, David Eby, um, on this, this topic and very selfishly to make 48 recommendations and to hear the minister say, I accept all of them and we're moving to implementation mm-hmm. is great. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I should have tried 4950. But I actually did have three in advance. You were like a bad gambler. <laughs> well, you, kind of, you, you stopped at 17 and blackjack or something. There you could you have go. got the 21. Yeah. It's been very positive. Yeah. I know that the report is not being shelved, which is nice to know. I'm not perfect. Uh, I know that in the course of implementation, there will no doubt be some nuancing and, and that sort of thing. But I can also judge uh, from what took place already, and that gets to your more specifically to your question. Uh, the minister, in the terms of reference, did invite interim recommendations. So I made two interim recommendations in November. Mm-hmm. And that was done really to stem the bleeding. Uh, I know that there had been a decline in organized crime presence in the casinos, but I didn't want another six months to go by when I could already see a couple of things. One, uh, MNP had recommended a source of funds declaration of sorts. I also could see that as important. And it puts an onus on the casino operators to be a bit more diligent in terms of filling out forms. Number two, I became aware of the fact that the regulator, neither the regulator nor the BCLC's investigators worked overnight. Uh, they, it was essentially nine to five. 
So I recommended that there be a presence, a regulator presence, whatever that means. Like an on-call person of some sort? Well, I I see presence as more than on-call, but having someone working 24-7 and available to the casino operators and to deal with issues as they come. Just having that presence and that knowing that someone is there. The third recommendation I made was made in the spring, and that coincides with the the Ministry of Finance consultation paper that I referred to. And I recommended that the minister, um, that the province make representations to the federal government with respect to amendments. And in fact, the minister not only did that, he traveled to Ottawa and spoke to the uh, standing committee on finance. Uh, Subsequently, I also traveled to Ottawa um, and, and spoke to that same committee on that issue. Um, so, and then if I may, to go back to your, your opening premise of your question, it was about the overlay. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not in the report advocating any changes to the federal government structure or anything like that. In fact, mine is a report for the provincial government, so I have no authority to look at FinTrack or the RCMP, although I do comment on both. Yeah, but you can see the, the connection I, in, in reading the report. Yes, and I think the minister made it, it quite clear that um, I think he has said we need assistance from the federal government in terms of resources and so forth because we have an interesting system in our country where with three levels of government. The federal government definitely plays a role in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. There is a federal component to the RCMP, so we need that component here as much as anywhere else. There's also, of course, the provincial level, the municipal level. Uh, FinTrack is a federal agency, so we want to make sure that FinTrack is successful. Um, or not that FinTrack is that that what they gather leads to success. FinTrack is not a law enforcement agency, and therein lies an issue that they have to deal with. So they they're they they're great at collecting the intelligence and analyzing it, but it has to get pushed back out. They do push it back out, but anything we can do to improve that, and then lastly, you get to the whack a mole game. Make sure that you are regulating the industries that have to be regulated. Yeah, at a provincial level. Uh, what kind of unit is best to deal with this? We can't have a special policing force per se, but we can certainly have units inside what we do. Well, I'm actually recommending a specific police force for this. Um, so I looked at the the entire structure, looked at you know other examples, and uh, I've recommended an independent regulator. So a regulator that is independent from government, that reports to a board of directors, um, and uh, the Crown Cop Corporation model uh, works best uh, as far as I'm concerned. That's what Ontario has with what we refer to as AGCO. They do both alcohol and gaming and potentially cannabis as well in Ontario out of the one regulator. It's independent and it can actually fine and has in the past fined OLG, which is the oh, yeah. equivalent of BCLC. Right. Yeah. So it has it has that ability. That's the regulatory side. So you then look at the law enforcement side. Um, the the last provincial government did create a unit and it's referred to as JIGID. JIGID is part of the combined forces special enforcement unit, the organized crime uh, folks that are RCMP plus municipal uh, resources. JIGIT um, has two teams. One does illegal ga- gaming. So that is gaming that's outside of the legal casinos. And that is an issue that has to be covered off. The other uh, is essentially doing money laundering. And uh, they have been uh, extremely busy, as I understand it, with one particular case that's been ongoing for some time. So I've said in the report, that's good, but we need more than that. So a whole uh, separate police force. Yes. So I've recommended uh, the creation of a designated policing unit. 
Mm-hmm. Now, we're not talking a, a huge force. We're talking, again, I'll use the word discrete uh, mm-hmm. force, but that is what Ontario has. Ontario has 160 OPP, Ontario Provincial Police yeah. Resources, attached to that regulator I just mentioned. And at first I thought, really? Uh, but I visited with them. I talked to them. Yeah. Um, and then I go to Nevada, and you've got the Nevada Gaming Control Board, which is roughly the equivalent. It's the regulator. And they have an enforcement unit, which are police officers. And they do do the same thing. So what I've recommended is a designated police unit. The, the, the best comparison in this jurisdiction is the transit police. The transit yeah. police okay. dedicated to transit lines. They're the experts there. Because we have a, we don't have a provincial police force in British Columbia. We have... Yeah. We have the Mounties and we have municipal forces. Yes, we do. In law, uh, there is a Provincial Police Act, as I understand it, but the RCP is that contract of Provincial Police Force. Um, But the the beauty of having a separate designated policing unit is that they will become experts Mm. at that role. Would they be uh, accountable to the province or would they be a subset of, say, the RCMP? No, they would be accountable to a police board just like the transit police are. Now, how that is worked out, I've actually recommended that the board of directors that governs the regulator, the independent regulator, could also double as the police board. Hmm. That may or may not be possible. Uh, I think that would be the the cleanest way to do it. But the Office of Constable does require that independence. And so the transit police have worked that out. Uh, In fact, I was a member of the transit police board uh, a number of years ago. And so I actually saw that in action. So I think there's, there's something to be said for that. Uh, it would be a 24-7 operation and they would be uh, experts at dealing with not only gaming offenses within casinos, but they would be that first line of response for anything criminal that takes place. Plus, there's lots of intelligence that comes out of casinos and so forth. They'd be there for the casino operators. Um, and uh, uh, it, to me, it, it just makes sense. You were really clear last week that your report was not designed to find fault. But that's where people go pretty quickly. They find fault and uh, and cast quite a few aspersions on the previous Liberal government. Uh, uh, I mean, even the minister himself probably couldn't help himself. Uh, he had to say a couple of things in that regard. Um, and there are others that now say we should have an inquiry. We should do the equivalent of the Quebec construction mm-hmm. inquiry. And go right into this. Um, how much value, how much energy do you think gets consumed by doing something like that compared to what could be done if you attach that energy to fixing systems? Sure. So we're fast getting into the political realm where I'm not the expert, no. but I'll, I'll give you my own personal uh, thoughts on this. Um, Yes, uh, the exercise was not a fault-finding exercise. It was not a royal commission. And the terms of reference did not ask for fault-finding. And right from the beginning, the minister was very clear. It's about recommendations to move forward with this industry and to fix whatever is not working. So that's what I attempted to do. Yes, um, and it's everyone's right to take that where they wish, and journalists will do that. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and yes, there has been criticism of the former government. Um, I, in fact, I, I had the opportunity of uh, interviewing Mr. Coleman. He was very uh, forthright with me. And, uh, uh, but that was to follow up in one particular area. Um, I was not, again, uh, attempting to find fault. Now, in terms of the question about Quebec and Royal Commission, uh, 
Certainly the decision to launch a Royal Commission is a political decision. Um, we know that Royal Commissions take a while. Uh, there are a lot of legal uh, protections involved, lawyers and so forth. It, it doesn't happen overnight. No. Uh, so the question is, at this point, what would the benefit, I would ask, what would the benefit be of having a Royal Commission into the casino industry at the end of the day? Um, I'm pretty confident in my own recommendations. Maybe you could say I'm overly confident, but I am confident that if we implement those 48 recommendations, uh, the barn door will be closed. It's not to say we will eliminate crime. There will always be crime, but we won't have the embarrassing crime that we had previously. The second part of it, though, is if you look at the Quebec example, uh, the Charbonneau Commission did cast a huge spotlight on what was taking place in the construction industry. Uh, That was a good thing. What Quebec has done afterwards is just as good. What Quebec has done is created a 300-person investigative and audit unit run by a former OPP uh, senior officer that that's the unit that has been going after the corrupt politicians and people within the industry. It's focused on the construction industry, and it's both this enforcement, but also looking at the future in terms of audit and, and who can bid for contracts. So they've done a great job. Now, you could ask the question, do you need the Royal Commission if you already know where you should be going? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to put words into your mouth, but presumably in all of this, that if the system is in place, if you have a new policing force, for instance, then it has the ability to track back and catch the bad guys in a way. Well, precisely. Just because the money has been laundered, the offense has been committed, doesn't mean uh, that you aren't still liable. Yeah. It's uh, not like the pre-proceeds of crime thing where you get to keep your money. Where, where there was no offense. Uh, we don't have limitation periods in criminal law in most areas right. uh, in this country. So it's not like the United States where you may have like five years to do something. Um, so it is always possible for the police to go back and and uh, if there are links. And actually, one of the reasons we played the the videos that we did um, at the at the you know, press conference, press yeah. conference, yeah. Uh, they themselves were, I think the minister mentioned, five or so years old because we didn't want to interfere with an ongoing police investigation, which itself might be going backwards. I have I don't know where they're going with that. Those two police investigations that are underway, the RCMP ones. But last thing we wanted to do was interfere with that. Yeah. You've been very generous with your time, and I don't want to keep you any longer, but I, I, uh, you are like a lot of researchers that I've uh, met over the years, which is that you uh, you kind of finish your report and you say, but you know, the good thing is that we can still study some other areas here. Mm-hmm. And we this, this leads us to other lines of research. What are, what are the lines of research, do you think, now that are necessary as a result of doing 248, 49 pages? Right. Well, in terms of British Columbia, I, I think we've sort of covered, um, I did in the recommendations also mention where I think we should be going. Real estate is that one area, yeah. and the minister has highlighted that. I think we do have to take a serious look at other sectors of the economy to make sure that we've got a vibrant, holistic approach to financial regulation. I am not trying to burden every sector of the economy unduly. There are interesting ways that this can also be done. Uh, and the government, the federal government is looking at, for example, geographic targeting orders so that maybe only in certain areas of the country, certain reporting is required. Maybe 
you know, if you're talking about high-end luxury items, maybe it's only items over a certain amount have to be reported. So there's different ways of dealing that without creating undue burden. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think we have have to look at that. Um, I, I, I think it's important in terms of the casinos to follow through on, on these recommendations. I think implementation is, is important and we, and we have to make sure that that continues. Um, my fear, and I mentioned it right in the press conference, and it's also in the report, is that going halfway is like not going anywhere. Um, you really do have to circle the wagons on this one, have everyone going down that that same road. I like what I see at this point. Uh, the minister is, is committed to getting this done and to implementing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think really at this point, it's, it's straight ahead. I am also a realist. Crime does not disappear. There will always be forms of crime. But what we don't want is our country or our city to be called the Vancouver model internationally. Well, it's gonna, embarrassing. I was going to say that is not a label that you particularly no. want. No. Is, by the way, is the Vancouver model any different than the model anywhere else? Is it is, is there a unique the, element to it? The, the, the professor in at Macquarie University in Australia mm-hmm. who coined it, and I just came upon it more by chance, but in my conversations with him, most interesting, a real expert on uh, primarily Asian or organized crime, um, he really you know said it very simply. Well, what you've got is organized crime clipping its ticket at both ends. So it, they're basically doubling their revenue. They're not only laundering drug proceeds, but they're also facilitating the movement of cash out of, for example, China yeah. and the currency controls that are in place. Yeah. And so there are people getting a little take in all of these transactions. Um, and that was the unique issue of the Vancouver model. Uh, you, you have uh, people who have to launder this money and they have to give it to somebody. So that's great. You've got some people who are absolute dupes in all of this, receiving dirty money, and they merrily go off into the casino and uh, play with it, lose it, whatever. They may keep it. And there's a, a, a transfer of uh, of chits uh, that takes place through an underground banking system that has been in existence forever. Yeah. And the Australians are afraid it's coming to them. If it hasn't Australia already. has casinos and they're alive to the issues uh, and they're, they are like uh, British Columbia. We are in many ways an Asian city here in Vancouver. We look to Asia. It's a powerhouse for us and, uh, and so it is for Australia. Um, but yes, they're also concerned about the, uh, the, the downside impacts. Yeah. Last point uh, before we got distracted on the Vancouver model, <laughs> you talked about how, you know, you're, you still have great optimism that this is all going to proceed. Are you going to now be a bit more of a public watchdog on on uh, on politics on this one to I've, make sure that this proceeds? Well, thanks, Kirk. That's kind of it even suggested. I, I don't see myself ever being a politician. I My hat is off to people that can do that, and, and you are one of those that, yeah. that has taken that dive in the past. Uh, that's, that's not me. But I certainly uh, – and the minister actually – uh, encouraged me to uh, get out there and talk about the report if mm-hmm. people want to hear about it. And uh, I think that's important. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I, I feel very passionately about this, but I also feel very passionately about our country, our province, and our city. I was born in this city. Yeah. And uh, it's a beautiful city. And as I mentioned uh, in, in, as I mentioned in the report, but also as I mentioned at the press conference, it is a, about all those 
great things about Vancouver that also make it very attractive to organized crime. Organized crime likes it for the same reasons that we do. It's all about access. It's about our systems. It works for organized crime. It also works for us and makes it a beautiful place to live. Well, I hope a year in and two years in and three years in, you give us a bit of a report card Be on how to. it's going. Thank you, Kirk. Thanks so much for your time today, Peter. It was great. Most enjoyable. This has been the BIB Interview. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief of Business in Vancouver. Thanks a lot for listening.